industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime, poison prevention. Spills. This is Toxic History. Dr. Trevor Servini is a senior fellow in medical toxicology at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. He completed his emergency medicine residency at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, New York City. Trevor Servini is not a witch, has never written in the devil's book, and vehemently denies ever morphing into a wolf, rabbit, or other familiar, but that's according to him. So with that, I'm going to hand over the mic to you. Thank you, Dr. Servini. Thanks so much, Adam, and thanks, Josh. We're going to keep it in the 17th century for this next talk. As our thoughts turn to the fall and to the changing leaves and to pumpkin carving and trick-or-treat, we're going to talk about the Salem Witch Trials and the ergot hypothesis. So on August 19, 1692, while standing on a ladder in front of a crowd, George Burroughs successfully recited the Lord's Prayer. This would not have been such an uncommon occurrence for a congregational pastor in 1690s Massachusetts, if not for the fact that he did so with a noose around his neck, waiting to be hanged after being convicted of witchcraft and conspiracy with the devil by the court of Oyer and Terminer. The fact that it was thought impossible for a witch to recite the Lord's Prayer must have struck many in the crowd, and while some openly wept and others began to approach as if to stay the execution, Minister George Burroughs would hang. His would not be the only corpse this day. Four others accused and convicted of witchcraft would meet the same fate. John Proctor, John Willard, George Jacob Sr., and Martha Carrier. In all, by the autumn equinox of 1692, 19 men and women would meet their fates at those same gallows, and one man, Giles Corey, would be crushed to death, making the Salem Witch Trials the deadliest in North American history. Nearly 200 people would be accused, filling jails across the colony as they awaited trial. So how did a puritanical colonial village become the site of one of the most notorious events in early American history? The Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 1680s was in a state of flux. The charter of the Massachusetts Bay Company, which established the colony and defined its governance, was revoked by an English court in 1684. You know, the small matter of the colony now lacking constitutional authority to govern aside, tensions between the French-backed Wabanaki peoples and the New England colonists, which had been building for some time, now erupted. The ensuing fighting up and down the main coast would send many refugees to places like Essex County, bringing with them stories of the irredeemable Catholic French and the heathenous Indians. Not that the Puritans of Massachusetts needed the reminder. They already knew all too well that evil was everywhere, just waiting to tear down the weak and rip them from the path of salvation. You see, at its core, New England Puritanism was based on the belief that God had chosen a few people, the elect, for salvation, and the rest of humanity was damned. Cheery. Uh, given the high stakes involved, Puritans lived in a constant state of spiritual anxiety, because how could you ever really know if you were among the chosen? One had to closely scrutinize every aspect of one's life to search for clues of God's providence or anger. As far as witches were concerned, and indeed the devil himself, these were as real as you or I. It was a popular notion at the time that since the devil and demons were fallen angels, disbelief in their existence implied disbelief in the existence of angels themselves, and by extension, God. Few doubted. Demons and the devil then were not only metaphorical, but literal embodiments of temptation away from the path of righteousness. 
And it follows that if the devil were as real as God himself, there would be those foolish or wicked enough to pay allegiance to him to gain dark powers or maleficium. These larger themes, the puritanical belief system, governmental upheaval, and the wars with the French and Native Americans certainly put the people of Salem Village on edge. But as it is so often the case, it was local politics that were possibly the most vicious and bitter. Now, while most of us think of Salem as a single unit, in the 17th century, this was not the case. Salem Village, which is now modern day Danvers, Massachusetts, was a farming area northwest of Salem town. And by the late 1600s, inhabitants of the village were deeply divided. Some like the Putnam family sought further independence from Salem town, finding the loosening of orthodoxy among the Salem town churches repugnant. The rising merchant class intolerable and resented paying taxes to a town that they felt did little for them. Others like the Porter family, while still primarily farmers, had developed commercial interests in Salem town and deposed measures to further isolate Salem village into an independent entity. After Salem village had petitioned and earned the right to establish their own parish, apart from those of Salem town, it became clear that finding a minister to lead the flock would in this environment prove to be another matter entirely. Each minister, including George Burroughs, who had been invited to lead the parish, found themselves incapable of satisfying the needs of the village as a whole. So when Minister Samuel Paris arrived in 1688 with his household, which included his wife, three children, and his slaves, at the invitation of the Putnam family, he knew he was walking into a quagmire. The fourth minister appointed to the village, Paris's strict orthodoxy pleased as many as it offended and disputes over his compensation reflect the lines being drawn in the sand among the families of Salem. Then the fit started. Nine-year-old Betty Paris, the minister's own daughter, and her 11-year-old cousin Abigail began to have peculiar symptoms. They would scream, throw things about the room, make strange and awful sounds, contort themselves into unnatural positions, and complain of being pinched and pricked with pins. These symptoms lasted for weeks, and while the diagnosis proved elusive, it eventually became clear, at least to one physician traditionally assumed to have been William Griggs, that the girls were under an evil hand. Soon, other young women in the town began having similar symptoms. 12-year-old Ann Putnam Jr. and 17-year-old Elizabeth Hubbard. And the question of what was afflicting the girls morphed seamlessly into who. At that point, it was only a matter of time before names got named, and named they did. Some historians and academics believe that what happened in Salem Village in 1692 was so singular as to warrant a special explanation. This becomes seemingly even more necessary when we consider the historical context surrounding witch trials in general on both sides of the Atlantic. Only a handful of other executions on the charge of witchcraft in Massachusetts are known to have occurred prior to Salem. Otherwise, outcomes actually tended to favor the accused. Meanwhile, in Europe, while witch trials had peaked in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, they were well on the decline by the mid-1600s. In 1976, in an article published in Science Magazine, Linda Caporeal proposed an intriguing physiological basis for the Salem witch trials, convulsive ergotism. Ergot diseases of rye have had a severe impact on human history and agriculture for centuries. In the Middle Ages, vast epidemics of ignis sacer or holy fire 
occurred throughout Europe. Monks of the Order of St. Anthony proved especially adept at treating the afflicted. Prayer was a central focus at the hundreds of hospitals eventually established for the caring of such patients, as were the application of balsams, the provision of Antonite wine, and the feeding of patients with carefully harvested ergot-free rye. No doubt the latter played a central role in their convalescence. It was during this time that two distinct forms of ergotism were first described. The gangrenous, which tended to occur in France and other European countries west of the Rhine, and the convulsive to the east. The gangrenous form tended to start with malaise and a generalized lassitude, perhaps some mild vomiting, and was followed within the course of a few weeks by the painful swelling of a typically a foot or a hand. This would be associated with intense burning pains, but eventually would be followed by numbness or indeed a sudden cessation of pain and ultimately the falling off of the affected part at the joint. The convulsive form was also accompanied by nonspecific symptoms of fatigue, malaise, and diarrhea with or without vomiting. Formication was a common early symptom or occasionally diffuse pins and needle sensations. Delirium, psychotic symptoms including paranoia and hallucinations and aphasia are well described. Neuromuscular manifestations range from myokymia to severe tonic spasms of the limbs, all the way to generalized convulsions. In severe but non-fatal cases, the disease might last six to eight weeks with months of convalescence and occasionally leave sufferers with persistent neuropsychiatric symptoms or cataracts. The reason for the different forms of the disease is unknown even today, but has been speculated to be due either to differing specific alkaloidal content or the co-occurrence of ergot toxicity with vitamin A deficiency. Experimental evidence for the latter comes largely from canine studies carried out by Sir Edward Mellenby. Uh, he was a British biochemist and nutritionist who's best known for the discovery of vitamin D and its role in preventing rickets in 1919. In the late 1920s, Sir Mellenby found that dogs with vitamin A deficient diets fed ergot would occasionally suffer from a clinical syndrome similar to convulsive ergotism and develop spinal cord lesions, which would not be observed in dogs provided with mammalian liver oil. The ergot alkaloids are contained within the sclerotium, the hard, darkly pigmented, tuber-like resting stage of the fungus claviceps purpura. The name ergot de is derived from the old French word argo, meaning cockspur, which the sclerotium resembles. I know it's French, but get your mind out of the gutter. I'm talking about roosters. More than 40 ergot alkaloids have been isolated from the sclerotia of claviceps purpura. These are potent 3,4-indole substituted mycotoxins, biosynthetically derived from L-tryptophan, and are further subclassified based on structural complexity into the lysergic acid amides, the ergopeptides, and the clavines. Lysergic acid amide is also found in Ololiqui, morning glory seeds and were used to induce trance-like states in divination ceremonies by the Aztecs. The nucleus of these alkaloids, ergoline, seen here, is structurally similar to biogenic amines, enabling the ergot alkaloids, based on their various other functional groups, to act either as agonists or antagonists at peripheral alpha-adrenergic and serotonergic 2A and 1B receptors, as well as central dopaminergic, serotonergic, and adrenergic receptors. What evidence exists supporting ergotism as the proximate cause of the Salem witch trials? 
Well, rye, the most important cultivated grain that's parasitized by ergot, was certainly a staple New England crop. Ideal growing conditions for Claviceps purpura seems to have occurred in 1691, at least based on diary entries from the time, which suggested a frigid winter followed by a wet, rainy growing season. Mary Matosian, a history professor who's also published work in support of the ergot hypothesis, cites studies of tree ring indices in New Hampshire to further support the possibility of a cold growing season in 1691. Such conditions could have resulted in the failure of other crops and an over-reliance on ergotized rye. Next, we have the afflicted themselves. When their symptoms are taken in some and at face value, they certainly sound like convulsive ergotism. Visual hallucinations, formication, burning sensations, convulsions, and even one patient who experienced urinary stoppage. The fact that the girls first afflicted were in the Paris and Putnam households, the theory goes, is not a coincidence. The Putnams would likely have paid Samuel Paris at least part of his salary in rye and other crops, providing an ample store of ergotized grain to the good minister and his family. Salem Village was the source of Salem Town's food supply. Given this, ergotism would have been fairly widespread. Could it be that not only the afflicted, but the arbiters of the court themselves had their thought processes altered by ergot? Argument that the afflicted girls were responding to social cues by skeptics of the ergot hypothesis seems to be countered by animal victims and human deaths. Three people and several cows died in 1692. It's pretty obvious that many of these arguments are at best speculative and maybe at worst purposefully misleading. Diary entries stating that the winter was very cold in Massachusetts and tree ring studies from 136 miles north of Salem Village in and of themselves say very little about local growing conditions. The afflicted girls in many accounts were hale and hearty between fits. Jurors were actually instructed to ignore just how well the girls appeared as this may mislead them into believing they were not in fact being tormented. When an accused witch would glance in their direction, the girls would often convulse in unison during court proceedings, with attacks only ceasing with the touch of the accused. When an accused would nervously bite his or her lip, the girls would all cry out that they were being bitten. Additionally, none of the other afflicted had the full constellation of symptoms of convulsive organism. One person with blindness, another with urinary stoppage, and yet another with visions of specters doesn't really make a syndrome. Then we come back to the cows. Cows and people died. How can you explain that? Well, of course, some cows and animals and people died in Salem in 1692. People and really sadly cows regularly become sick and die. No baseline data regarding rates of human and animal deaths from this period is available. And there's no indication in the record of a sudden marked increase in the frequency of such deaths during the trials. Another theory is that the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony were suffering from a sort of mass hysteria. If you doubt the power of suggestion and the ability for a mass psychogenic illness to be complex and long-lived, let me introduce you to the Dancing Plague of 1518. It all started one sunny day in July when a woman named Frau Truffaut began to dance fervently in a street in Strasbourg, Alsace, in what was then the Holy Roman Empire. 
She would dance until exhausted, collapse, rest briefly, and then continue right where she left off. After a week of this, several dozen others joined in. This continued despite attempts by the city authorities to quell the madness, until by August, nearly 400 people were afflicted, all dancing wildly and with reckless abandon. At least some people are thought to have danced themselves to death. While we don't know the exact reason for the dancing plague, the most widely accepted explanation comes from historian John Waller. Psychological distress secondary to starvation as a result of successive failed harvests and endemics of syphilis, leprosy, and plague, along with a belief in the ability of wrathful spirits to inflict a dancing curse, all likely coalesced into being. While it's one thing to consider centuries-old cases of mass psychogenic illness, whose details have been lost to time, one event far more recent comes to mind. In 2016, U.S. and Canadian embassy staff in Havana, Cuba, began experiencing diverse symptoms, tinnitus, headaches, dizziness, discoordination, and cognitive deficits, to name a few. As reports of such symptoms multiplied, suspicions were raised that maybe the afflicted were being attacked, not by witchcraft or wrathful spirits, but by top-secret, technologically advanced weaponry based on ultrasound or microwaves with laser-like spatial accuracy. The question stopped being what was the syndrome, but who was causing it? While I admit that the cause of Havana syndrome has not been definitively established, the pattern certainly does sound familiar, doesn't it? Ideas, in many ways, are like viruses. Once they take hold, they can replicate and spread quickly. This is as true of Salem Village in the 1690s as it is of our global community in the 21st century. The evidence behind ergotism as the catalyst of the Salem witch trials is, at best, flimsy. Much more compelling are the myriad other factors that we know vex the Puritans of Salem Village. The local religious political divisions playing out against a backdrop of French-backed Native American raids and the lack of a constitutionally-backed government sowed the seeds. The firmly held belief in the supernatural and in witchcraft in general provided the fertile soil. We will never know the truth, but I think the ergot hypothesis is a solution in search of a problem. The witch trials happened for one very simple reason, because human beings were involved. Since the correlation between infected rye and ergotism was established in the mid 19th century, large epidemics of ergotism have become rare thanks to the implementation of highly effective control and separation methods, but they do still occur. The 1951 mass poisoning of more than 250 people in Pont Saint-Esprit in France in the setting of tight Vichy government control over grain supply and its distribution to bakers who, as a result, had no control on quality is one such example. An outbreak of gangrenous ergotism in Ethiopia in the 1970s as a result of contaminated barley is another. So while we like to think that we know better than the people of Salem did in 1692, and in some ways maybe we do, the old adage is almost certainly true. The devil really is in the details. These are my references, and thank you so much for listening.